I need you to exercise your faith with me this morning for two things. The first is that I'll end early. (laughs) Because, first of all, that's not my habit. (laughs) And secondly, because what I want to talk to you about this morning, we could go on and talk about for weeks and weeks and weeks. But there's a real focus and purpose for today. As I announced at the beginning, we're... This is a day where we're going to focus on ministries in the church and, and making you aware of them uh, for the purpose of availing yourself of them, but also for the purpose of letting you know of opportunities there are for you to contribute. When we talked about this day and I looked at things that were in my heart and things that, that I saw to share I, uh, you know, there's scriptures, and we spent a lot of time last year in Ephesians chapter 4 talking about the, us, we are, the, we are the saints, and the ministry gifts are given to equip the saints so that we can do the work of the ministry. We discussed that work, although it's a four-letter word, it's not a naughty word. It's okay to say in church, and it's okay to do in church. And that ministry is service. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a profession, it's a service. It literally is a table waiter. And we talked about all that, and that's kind of what I had in mind and, you know, was working on this week and woke up yesterday morning as I was getting ready to come to the men's meeting, and I, I really felt like the Lord asked me a question. And it, it, it could have been me, but it was, it was just, it came out of my heart. And it was, it was this. Now, understand what I'm going to say. The intention is, it, first of all, the Bible says there is no condemnation. So everybody say that with me. There, there is now... Therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not to condemn anybody. I'm preaching to me this morning. I woke up yesterday morning and was thinking about the men's meeting and thinking about the fun night we were going to have, which we did have last night. And the Lord said to me, He says, you're going to have over 100 people come to that fun night. And He asked me this question, because He's talking about, to me as the pastor of this church, about this church. He said, how many do you think would come if it, instead it was a fun night, it was a prayer night? Now, we had a wonderful time last night, and there's nothing wrong with having fun in church. It was a wonderful time to come together. And the Lord spoke to me something I've heard from other pastors, is that the spiritual health of a church is not determined by the attendance on Sunday morning. It's not even ultimately determined by the giving. It's determined by the attendance at prayer because prayer is a reflection of your attitude, of your intimacy and your relationship with God. If I can do anything I want to do, what I want to do most will be to go away and spend time with my wife. See, I've got time. I want to be with her. I don't look at being with her as an obligation that I have to fulfill because we're married. Everything else kind of gets in my way of doing what it is I want to do is just to be with her. Why? Because I love her and she loves me because of the relationship we have. So the desire of my heart expressed towards her is a revelation, is an indication of where she is in my heart. So I came over here and we're men's meeting with the first hour we spend in here in prayer. And I'm just, I'm praying away and the Lord began to speak to me about this morning. And he said, what you want to give the people, he said, you want to treat them like children. 
He said, you're trying to motivate them the way, we, way you motivate children by giving them candy. Because I was going to talk to you about all the wonderful blessings of working in the church and doing things for the church. And the Lord says, I want you to talk to them about something else. I want you to talk to them about my heart and their heart. Because what you're doing or what you're not doing is a reflection of your heart towards God. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. The Lord spoke to me. He says, there are many people that are not involved in serving me, not because they're bad people, not because they don't love me somewhere, but because I'm not the first priority in their life. And the enemy works, again, we're good people, but the enemy works to bring in things to distract us, real things that are important. And there's more pressure on people right now than I have seen probably in my whole life. More, every week I hear people come to me and there are all kinds of financial pressures, family pressures. The enemy just works to pressure, 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 pressure. But there's a purpose for that pressure. The purpose for that pressure is to distract you and keep you from what's really important. I've shared with you before that I have found spending time with the Lord during the day more difficult when I got on staff here than when I practiced law. It was easier for me to find time during the day to spend time in prayer because I would take my lunch hour because I was working a secular job. Therefore, it was easy. I was, it was my time. But I found when I came on staff here, I didn't have any time. So what I've had to do is make it. I don't set any appointments before 10 o'clock because I have a 9 o'clock appointment. It's in here with the Lord. Say, well, you're a pastor. That's your business. That's right, it is. There's more required of me, but it's changed me. I find more energy. I find more peace. I find more wisdom to do the things that happen the rest of the day. Why? Because I put him first. I put him first. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 20, let's see, 22. We'll start in verse uh, 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, because the Pharisees were excited that he'd silenced the Sadducees, because they were in competition with each other. Then one of them, there you go, a lawyer, asked him a question. Isn't that like him? Testing him. Saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, I'm certain that that lawyer wasn't asking that question because he wanted to know which one he was to keep first. But he was testing Jesus. They learned not to do that. (laughs) And Jesus said to him, this is it, and this is the message to us today. This is the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first commandment and great commandment. But there's a second one. The second one is like it. Notice it's like it. So they're connected somehow. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice something here. Notice the order. Basically saying, if you do these things, you'll you'll fulfill every other commandment. So it's real easy. We don't have to remember ten. There are only two shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But notice the priority is to love the Lord first. School of ministry used to have, I, I used to make this statement, and I said, don't, don't pick up stones to throw them at me yet. I'm not, we're not here to serve people first. Right, Bill? I said, we're here to serve the Lord. And if you serve the Lord, He'll serve people through you. But if you serve people first, then they become your Lord. They become your motivation. Your motivation becomes sympathy. It becomes compassion instead of your relationship to the Lord. And then what happens is, see, the message, one of the messages of Matthew chapter 7 is whatever foundation you build your life on is what will either hold you up or crumble under pressure. And our life is to be built on our commitment and love for the Lord first because nothing can take Him away from you. Now go with me to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is part of, this is part of what we call the Sermon on the Mountain. He's saying some things like, you know, the... the um, uh, he's talking about you can't serve God and money. He talks about, you know, the eye of the... the, the, the he said if your eye is, is evil, you, you, you know, the light that's in you is darkness and some very strange things. And then he goes talking about don't worry about today what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. And he talks about all kinds of things. And if you really read the whole context, what he's talking about here is the commitment of your heart. It's all about the commitment of your heart. When he talks about worry, starting in verse 20, I think it is, he talks about the commitment of your heart. The reason worry is a sin is because worry robs the, the commitment of your heart from the Lord to other things. When you're worrying about something, that thing takes a place in your heart above Him. And it brings us down to verse 33, very famous verse. So instead of worrying about what you're going to wear, instead of worrying about the affairs of life, He's not saying don't plan He's not saying don't, you know, don't budget. He's not saying don't, you know, do financial management. He's not saying those things because those don't necessarily involve your heart. What he's saying is don't worry about it because worry is when your heart goes into it. When you worry about something, you've given your heart to it. It matters to your heart enough to drain you of your faith and your energy and of your life. And that's what Satan's after. But here's the key, verse 33. But seek first, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all those things you need will be added unto you. Satan's trying to keep some of you so busy providing for yourself, trying to find a job, trying to do this, trying to do that. You don't have any time for him. And as a result, your heart's going into the affairs of this life because, well, obviously I need a job. I need, no, you need him first. I'll make this step. Just, this is a pastor talk today. The cameras are off. I can say what I want. <laughs> I've had people, and I'm not thinking of anybody. I've had people that I'm aware of that, are, you know, they've been looking for a job for two and three years. I'll tell you what I would do if I hadn't found a job in a period of time. 
I would come to the church and offer my, offer my time. I'd sow my time. Instead of putting seeking a job first, try putting God first and then see what He'll do. Seek first the kingdom. It's a hard issue. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things you need. Will See, God's our source. You think He can provide? You think He's able to meet your needs? I mean, look up at the stars at night. They came from Him. They're sustained by Him. I think your needs and my needs He can handle. I've, I, we don't have time this morning, but I could take you through testimony after testimony just in our lives of what God has done miraculously to provide when there seemed no possible way it could happen. But see, I made the decision early on in my Christian walk that God was my source. Now, that was easy then when I was working at a large, prosperous law firm, but then it wasn't so easy when I left there, resigned, and moved to Oklahoma with two kids and find out we had two more on the way and I had no job for a year and a half. But the things I learned with God as my source when I had the income helped me go through the time when God was my source when I didn't have the income and we never went without anything. God's your source. But you've got to seek Him first with your heart. First. That's what the... Oh, I'm going to step on somebody. That's what the tithe is about. The tithe is when you put Him first in your finances. And when you put Him first in your finances, your finances become His priority. And we say, well, I can't afford to do that. No, you can't afford not to. Because when you refuse to do what He says, then what you're saying is, I can handle this situation myself. Well, I want to ask this question. How good a job are you doing? We better move along. First Peter chapter 3. I'll just read this one to you. Verse 15 says, Sanctify, and the New American Standard says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Sanctify just means to set apart. So set Him apart as Lord in your heart. See, we have this up here. It says, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord whether you make Him Lord of your heart or not. He is Lord. He's not Lord because we voted it in. My wife showed me the, a, a note that the Lord, he said, she spoke, he said he spoke this word to me. I don't know quite what it means. It says, he says, the church is the theocracy, not a democracy. She says, what does that mean? I said, it means God rules. <laughs> we don't vote Him in or vote Him out. He is Lord, not because we agree with it or not. However, that doesn't make Him Lord of my heart. I have to make that choice. And it's sometimes a daily choice to make Him Lord of my heart. So sanctify Him. Set Him apart as Lord of your heart. See, when we get things in order, then God can work. If you've ever gone to a chiropractor, it didn't make any sense to me, but what they do is they put your spine in alignment, and when they do, your body functions more healthy, healthily. And so God wants to get us in order, and the order, correct order, is He is Lord of our hearts. 
He has that first place in our hearts. Now I want to just read some scriptures to you quickly because I want to show you because there's a lot of things out there in the body of Christ right now and a lot of things in teachings and uh, in focuses and some of them are very good. But, but I want to read to you how some of the key people in the New Testament saw themselves. You know, we're all caught up in our self-image. You know, what's your self-image? We need the, if you go to a bookstore, you'll see so many books on improving your self-image. And there are Christians out there trying to improve your self-image. And I, years ago, there's a famous story, but there's a woman who's, if I mentioned this woman's name, you almost all know her. And she ended up leaving her husband, and she was seen on Christian TV saying, well, I've done this because, you know, I just need to go find myself. I almost climbed through the TV. And said, you need to get saved then. Because when you get saved, it tells you who you are. You don't need to find yourself. You need to find the Lord because when you found Him, you know who you are. Let me read for you just some verses of of who some of these authors in the New Testament said they were. Jude, who was the brother of James. Jude 1 says this, I am Jude, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what's a bondservant? A bondservant is different than just a servant. You can become a servant because you were born that way. Not so much today, but although there's different types of servitude. But you can become a servant because you were just born into a family that were servants or slaves. I'm not talking about, you know, in employment. But a bond servant in the, in the Old Testament was somebody who was given their freedom, and once they were given their freedom, they chose, because of their relationship with their master, to continue to serve that master as a servant. But the difference is now it was a result of their choice, not because they, had, they were made to be that. And literally what they would do is they would take them over, the instructions in the Old Testament is take them over to the doorpost and take an awl, you know, that pointy instrument, put their earlobe up there, which is what a lot of people are doing today, and poke a hole in the ear and stick a ring in there. See, a lot of people want to have earrings. There's nothing wrong with jewelry, ladies. But it's so prevalent among men right now, and they don't understand that's a sign of servitude. That's a sign of slavery except in the Old Testament, it was called a doulos. It, the Greek words doulos, when they translated the Old Testament, it meant somebody who, as an act of their will, made themselves someone else's slave out of their love and respect for that person and all they'd done for them. That's what a bondservant means. So Jude's image of himself, he could have said Jude, the half-brother of Jesus. Woo! That sets him apart from almost everybody else except James. He says, Jude, first of all, he says, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he saw himself. And a brother of James to all who are called and sanctified by God and preserved in Jesus Christ. Let's look at Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, he could say, I'm the one that was on the Mount of Transfiguration. I'm one of only three men who saw him stand there in his glory and saw Elijah come down and be with him. He could say, I was the one that was the leader of the disciples. I was the one that was always saying what was going to happen. Of course, half the time he had his foot in his mouth, but he could have said all those things. But what did he say about himself? Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle 
of Jesus. We got so many people running around saying, I'm apostle this and I'm apostle that. But I don't hear many of them saying, I'm bondservant this. I'm bo- I haven't seen yet any cards that says, Joseph Smith, bondservant. Because <laughs> you see, when you're a bondservant, you don't need to advertise it because the only one that needs to know you're a bondservant is the one you're a bondserving. Because it's between you and them. You're not concerned with what other people think because you're not their servant, you're his servant. And the reason people can get under your skin, or am I the only one that can happen to? The only reason people get under you or annoy you is because that's the part, the part of you that they annoy is the part that's not serving him. Because when the part of you that's serving him is lost in him, it's his business what they do. I've told you before, God has a sense of humor. Because I grew up with just my background and my childhood, the way I grew up, I needed people's approval. If, 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 every, if, ever, if every one of you came up to me and said, oh, we love you, you're doing such a great job, and the last person said, well, I've got some question about something, this, what I used to do is destroy my day. I could have had 10 people say, we love you, you're doing a great job, and one person didn't even say you're doing a lousy job, just say, well, you know, this bothered me a little bit. It would have ruined my whole day because I was propped up by what people thought of me. And God made me a pastor. (laughs) So I'd have to depend on Him. And I'm learning. The more I draw into Him, the more I turn my life over to Him, the less people bother me in that sense. I still love people, but the less things get to me or bother me. So Peter says about himself, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. James, this is the half-brother of Jesus and Jude's brother. James 1.1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes scattered abroad. Greetings. In Colossians 4.12, Paul writes about Epaphras. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you. And then, of course, there's the Apostle Paul. I'm just going to read through these. Romans 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Not appointed by myself, called to be an apostle. Separated to the gospel of God. In 2 Corinthians 4, 5, he says, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. Galatians 1, 10, For I do, not, I do now persuade men or God. Do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? But if I still seek to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You can't do both. You can't be pleasing men and pleasing God. Philippians 1, 1, Paul and Timothy that now Timothy's included, bondservants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with bishops and deacons. Titus 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect and acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. Now, of course, then there's Jesus. There's Jesus. There's Jesus. See, Paul had to let go of his credentials. We see that in Philippians chapter 2. Paul had to let go of his credentials. 
excuse me, Philippians chapter 3. Um, he had to let go of the fact that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, that he was born of the tribe of Benjamin. They're listed in there. His, his resume is listed in there. But in chapter 2 of Philippians, he talks about what Jesus had to let go of. Because it says he did not regard equality with God something to be held on to. So we talked last week about the Word was in God, with, with God. So Jesus, before he took on flesh and dwelt among us, he was the second person of the Godhead. And Philippians 2 says he humbled himself and let go of all that and took on flesh. Now, did he do that for the joyride? Did he do it for the thrill of slumming with us? Did he do it because I want to see what this is like? You understand he went through that whole process of leaving heaven, being born as a baby on this earth, having to grow up and become, going through things, things you and I go through growing up. Then once he reaches his call at 30 years of age, he's brought by the Spirit of God out into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and 40 nights and to be tempted of the devil. Goes through his three years plus ministry and now he comes to the purpose of that ministry, and he's beaten, scourged, nailed to a cross, dies, goes down into the hell for three days and three nights, and then is raised from the dead, only to be seated next to God again. Wait a minute. That's where he started. He ended up where he started. Why would he do that? To serve you and me. You read through the Gospels and you see he only did what his father told him to do. He only said what he heard his father say. In Hebrews, it quotes, I think the Old Testament, it quotes, I've come, in, you've, you know, sacrifices and offerings you didn't desire, because that's what was the Old Testament method of worship. But a body you desired. Instead of an animal to be sacrificed, you desired a body to be sacrificed. Therefore, I have come in the, in, the, in the word of the book to do your will. He came only to do the will of his father. He was a bondservant of his father. And because he was faithful as a bondservant of his father, every one of us in this room this morning has the opportunity to be saved from the pit of hell and to spend eternity in heaven with him. because he was willing to give his life up in service of somebody else. Well, Paul goes on and says some things about us too. Or Peter does. 1 Peter chapter 2.16 says, As free and yet not as li- using our liberty, the free talk about our, our liberty in Christ, as a cloak for vice, but as we're to be bondservants of God. And Ephesians 6.6 6 says, we're not to be as, as eye service, as men pleasers, but as bond service of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. I want to move this along because I'll have to summarize some of this. Here's the next principle I want you to see. And this is sometimes not comfortable, but it's good for us. What I'll let you turn your pages because I want you to hear what I'm going to say. What we do, what we do in service to the Lord 
And secondly, so what we do in service to the Lord, and secondly, the way we do it reflects what He means to us in our hearts. I'm going to say that again. What we do for the Lord. Now, you, you don't do anything for the Lord to earn His love and favor. That's a gift. But having given us the gift of His love and favor, that's the liberty that Peter was talking about, now it's our response to Him. And what we do for Him and how we do it is a clear window into what He means to us in our hearts. Now I say that second place, not just what you do, but how you do it, because I've sensed a slackness lately, a looseness, and it's human nature. You know, we just do the same thing over and over again. We can begin to just get a little sloppy and a little, you know, a little loose about how we do it, but what that reflects is where, what position the Lord has in our heart. Not whether we love Him, but whether He's the first love of our heart. Because that's something He can have today, and because we get distracted, other things can begin to creep in. And so we begin, it gets expressed in what we do for Him. I want to show you this from Scripture. Matthew 25 has several parables in there. But verse, verse 14, and we're, I was going to go through these before, but I'm not, I don't want to go through the whole thing because we don't have time. But this is the parable of the talents. The parable, of course, is, is, a, is a simple story, but it has a very powerful spiritual principle. And he talks about this man that came, this master came in, he, he called three of his servants to him, servants to him, and he entrusted each of them some talents, to when he gave ta- five, to when he gave ten, or ten, when he gave five, when he gave one, I think that's what it was. And then he went away for a long time. And the telling thing is, having done that, excuse me, he gave five, two, and one in this, in this one. And let's see, let's go down to, uh, so what, what happened is the, the guy who'd given five, verse 15 said he went and traded it and he made five more. And likewise, verse 17 said he who received the two, he went and traded and gained two more. But verse 18, the one who'd received just the one dug a, a hole in the ground and hid, notice, his Lord's money. They're stewards. The word steward means you don't own it, but you're responsible for it. And you understand this, you don't own anything. Everything you have, from the clothes that are on you right now, to the very breath you're breathing, came as ultimately from God. Now, you may have spent the money to pay for the clothes, but the money came from your job, and your job came from God. And you didn't create anything Therefore, everything you have has been entrusted to you as a steward. Now, there's several things you know about stewardship. First of all, you don't own it. Therefore, you're not boss over it. You're managing it for someone else's benefit. You're managing it for someone else's benefit, not yours. Now, there's a benefit that comes from managing it, but your main purpose is to manage it for someone else's benefit. That includes your talents, your giftings. Well, I don't have many. It includes your time. 
That's a gift. And the next thing about stewardship we're going to see is there comes a point when the one who gave it to you calls for an accounting of what you did with it. All right. And of course, the steward, the master comes back, and the first man says, I took the five and traded them, and I've got ten. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. The one to whom he given two brought back four and says, well done, good and faithful servant. And the one who had the one said, well, I was afraid of you because I know you reap where you do not sow. So I dug a hole and buried it in the ground. And he was not pleased with that servant. In fact, he took what he had away from him and gave it to the others. Now let's go into the next one, because the next one's even more troubling. This is, these are among the most troubling verses in the Bible to me, not because they're hard to understand, because they're confrontational. When the, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him and He sits on the throne of His glory and all the nations are gathered together before Him, He will separate them one from another. The shepherd divides the sheep and the goats. All right. Now, we're not, I don't believe we're talking in what we're going to talk about this morning about whether you go into heaven or not. But it does show there's going to be an accounting. But go down here. Verse 35. He says, You're going to inherit the kingdom. For when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous are going to answer him, Lord... When did we see you hungry or feed you and thirsty and give you drink? They didn't even know what they were doing. They were just doing it under the Lord. They didn't realize what they were doing. When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and and came to you? And the king will answer and say to you, Surely I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then he goes on and says to the others, You didn't feed me. You didn't clothe me. And they said, well, when, when did we not feed you? When did we not clothe you? He says, inasmuch as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it unto me. So one thing we learn from this parable is that the expression of what Jesus means to us is in what we do for other people. He sees them tied together. Notice again, he says, there's only two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it. They're connected together. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the expression of our love for God is going to be in our serving Him as He takes care of others. All right. It's going to get better. Just trust me. Let's go, to, uh, let's go to Revelation chapter 2. Now, the first four books, first three chapters of Revelation, especially chapter 2 and 3. Let's go back a second. This book is written by the Apostle John somewhere around the end of the first century, somewhere about 50 to 60 years after Jesus has been raised from the dead. And the only of the apostles that walk with Jesus that are left is John. And he is 
in exile on the Isle of Patmos. He's very old, and he gets up one day or wherever he's in prayer. It's on the Lord's Day, and he has a vision. Jesus appears to him. That's chapter 1. In chapter 2 and chapter 3, <clears throat> Jesus dictates, in essence, a report card to the church. So what we're looking at isn't John's view of the church. It's not, it's not the pastor's view of the church. This is the head of the church looking at his own body, giving a report card. That tells us he's watching what we do. He's not just sitting up in heaven, and if you, we're not going to have the time this morning to go through and look at these different seven letters, but each one of them is different and personalized to that church. So he knows what's going on in the church. Now remember, he loves us. Remember, we're his children, but a father will correct his children. A father will challenge his children. All right. And so, again, we're not going to go through all of these, and they would not fit what we're talking about this morning. But let's look at, at chapter 2, first of all, verse 1. To the angel of the church at Ephesus. Now, the angel's either referring to the pastor or some angelic being that oversees that church. But in any case, it's someone that has oversight. Write these things. He who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the golden lampstands, says, this is, what the, this is what the Lord says to us, I know your works. Now we're saved by grace. Undo good works. We're saved by grace. So your salvation, your standing before God, is not based on your works. But works are important. We're say we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto, for the purpose of, good works. John 15, Jesus said to his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And ordained you that you should go forth and bear fruit, much fruit, and that your fruit should remain. What we're looking at here is there will come a day when every one of us will stand before him and give an account of what we did with what he entrusted to us. And I prayed over this. I told my wife yesterday, I'm I'm nervous. I don't get nervous. I was nervous today because I don't want to add any of me to this. But on the other hand, I've got to stand before God of whether I spoke the Lord showed it me yesterday, right over here, kneeling during the men's meeting. He said, son, you're a teacher, so your instinct is to explain things. He said, tomorrow don't explain, call. The old days, what they used to do is when they were going to move, when they'd get the attention of the people, someone would blow a trumpet, or a shofar it's called, would blow a horn, and it was to alert everybody something was happening or going to happen. And the Lord said, tomorrow you're sounding a call. You're not explaining I'm comfortable teaching, but I've got to do what God's told me to do because I'll stand before him and account because if you don't do what you're supposed to do and I don't tell you, I've got to account for that. There's not fear in this, but there's reverence and respect. Verse 2, I know your works, your labor and your patience. 
Look at, it's good things. He's telling them that you cannot bear those who are evil. And that you have tested those that say they're apostles and they're not and have found them liars. In other words, you've been discerning and you've stood for what's not evil. You've, not, you've stood and not given into what's evil. Verse 3, and you've persevered and you have patience and you've labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So he's, he's patting them on the back saying you've done well in this area. Verse 4, but nevertheless I have this against you. You've left your first love. In other words, you're doing all these things, but you've stopped doing them because you love me. You're doing them because they're the right thing to do, or you have to do it for whatever, but you've stopped doing them because I'm the first love of your life. Now, the good news is he goes on and tells them what to do. He says, repent. Go back and do again the things you used to do, and remember what things used to be like. It's a good pattern for restoring marriages. Repent. I don't love her anymore. Okay, repent. (laughs) That's not an excuse to get out of it. Repent. And go back and do some of the things you used to do and remember what it used to be like. So he's saying, look, don't be afraid of him. But he's saying, look, he's looking. He says, you're doing these things right. But this is the one thing I have. Your motive for doing them has drifted. It's no longer because I'm the love of your life. It's no longer out of love and passion and zeal for me. See, I don't want to push evangelism programs here. They're good. They're okay. But by and large, when you do that, you develop a people who are, who are have, have, you know, they have, I used to call it, you know, the, they've got notches on their gun. I got three people saved today. When evangelist Charlie Elliott was here, we were talking about. He says, "Yeah, I call it, you know, the the, the scalps on the belt. You know, it's, it's it's I've got I've got trophies that I can put on my shelf. I won these many people today. I, and the focus is on me and satisfying my obligation. And therefore, when I stand before God, I'm going to get credit for all these people I saved. That doesn't work," he said, because he's an evangelist. He says, "People know that you're doing that." They can sense it. They can sense you're not doing it because you love them or you love the Lord. You're doing it because you have to. But I'm praying for the Spirit of God to grab a hold of our hearts that we'll begin to see what the Lord sees and feel what the Lord feels. And then from your heart, you reach people. Well, let's go over. We'll bring this to a close and really to what we're going to talk about today. Chapter 3. Verse 14. Now, this is the last of the churches he's writing to. We've looked at the first, now we're going to look at the last. Verse 14. To the angel of the church... This is some of the... Well, I'll just go ahead and read it. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Here again, I know your works, that you're neither hot nor cold... In other words, they were lukewarm. They come to church. They give their tithes. They do what they're supposed to do. But they do it because they're supposed to do it. They do it because they've gotten in that habit of doing it. I wish you were cold 
or hot. In other words, the Lord said, I'd rather have you cold than lukewarm. Why? Because when you're cold, you know you're cold. We just lost our power a couple of weeks ago. If you lose your power in the wintertime, you know it. I remember waking up one year, our furnace went out in the middle of the night. I woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning and went up to go to the bathroom. When I came back, something's wrong because it felt cold. And it wasn't supposed to be cold. I mean, we turned the temperature down at night, but it wasn't supposed to be cold. It's supposed to be lukewarm at night. And I knew something was wrong because it was cold. So he said, I'd rather have you cold because you'll know you're cold. But when you're lukewarm, you're warm enough to think you're okay. So you're comfortable. We live in a nation where we're comfortable. See, I've been in third world nations on the mission trip. They're not comfortable. When you live in a house and the walls are sticks stuck in the ground and your roof are banana leaves and there's a hurricane coming, you're not comfortable. They're not worried about whether there's going to be enough bread and milk at the Shaw's. Or whether they're going to be able to take a warm shower tomorrow. Talked to one man, he said for five hours they stood, lay down in the corner, praying in tongues while the tin roof spun around over their heads. Only a foot or so above their heads. If they stood up, it would have cut the top of their heads off. They weren't comfortable. These people have a zeal for the Lord, a passion, and you know they're happy. They're happy. They're not worried about a lot of the stuff we get worried about. Well, let me go on and read this because we've got to do some other things. I wish you were either cold or hot. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, and this is the Bible, I will vomit you out of my mouth. He's not happy. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy. He's not necessarily talking about finances. He's talking about your time. He's talking about whatever you have available to use for him. And you say, I'm rich. I've got so much. And I've become wealthy and I have need of nothing. And you do not know. This is how I see you, he says. You do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So God doesn't necessarily look at us in the same terms we do. Oh, we've got a beautiful building. Nice, comfortable seats. Yeah, we'd like to upgrade them, but they're comfortable. Today, the temperature's comfortable. In the summertime, it's air-conditioned. In the wintertime, it's heated. You know, we've got this beautiful, blessed building paid for. We're just, everything's just wonderful here. You know, we've got a great staff, everything. We're just so blessed here. And that's true, but that doesn't mean that's exactly how he sees everything. He's warning you, don't evaluate where you are and just feel comfortable because everything looks good and feels good in my life. He says, but here's how I see you. You think you're wealthy? He says, I see you as wretched, poor, miserable, blind, and naked. Those are all spiritual. Spiritually poor, spiritually miserable spiritually blind and spiritually naked. 
But the good news is it doesn't end there. He says, I counsel you to buy from me. I was meditating on that one day. Doesn't buy mean it's going to cost you something? To buy from me gold refined by fire. Isn't it interesting? Peter says that the, that, the, that the testing of your faith is more precious than gold. That you may be rich in the white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve so that you may see. Now look, at this is verse 19, is the comforting verse. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on the throne and, as I have also overcome and sat out with my father on his throne. He who is used to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is saying, look, I want to come in and be with you. I want to be among you. Because I love you, I'm correcting you. Wake up and realize where you are. The measure of your spirituality is in your, of your relationship with me is in not how you feel. It's not how high your hands go on Sunday or even in your living room. It is, is it, it is in your commitment to serve me as a bond servant. Bond servant means you do what he says to do. Where he says to do it, when he says to do it. Not because you think you can, not because it's comfortable to you, but because it's right to do in his eyes. I had a birthday this last week, and I hit the, the, the mark of 66 years. And, you know, at that type, stage of life, people like to think about, well, it's time to slow down. And, and when we were down in Texas, I looked around and said, boy, this would be a nice place to settle in. When we'd gone to Florida, I said, boy, wouldn't it be nice to just live in the winters down here? And, come, you know, my wife's talked about, oh, it would be nice if we could sell our house here with the equity bring out of that, could buy a house down, all this planning. I said, don't talk. I don't have that option. See, that doesn't even compute in my mind. Because I'm a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. People, how long are you going to do this until he says stop? Because my life is not my own. It belongs to him. And your life is not your own. It belongs to you. It belongs to him. And so what do I do? Well, you need to take a step. And you need to take something that you have. It may not be a big spiritual gift. It may just be your time. And give it to him. See, well, I don't know what to do. Give something, and then it's easier to redirect something that's moving than it is to get something moving. 